So what is God like? Who, who is He? Who is God and, and what is He like? I came across some responses to those questions from some kids this week. Gabby, age seven, God has giant ears so He can hear everything we are saying. All right? Remy, age seven, God lives inside every living thing, so my doctor has seen God when He cuts people open. There you go. That's it. Cuts people open every day in the hospital. Jody, age nine, God sits at a big desk in the clouds and watches us everywhere. I mean, it's a little creepy, but you know, I mean. Jackson, age seven, I call God when I need help with things, but not my homework because my mom says I have to do that by myself. <laughs> that's, that's how it works, Jackson. Sorry, buddy. Eve, age eight, takes us a, a little deeper. I wish God had a phone so that I could talk to him because I don't know if he hears me when I'm praying. <laughs> Bless, that's, that's a lot of us, right? We feel that moment. Max, age eight, takes us even deeper. My father never believed you were real, but my mom did. But then she got sick. And now he prays to you, but my mom doesn't anymore. That's, that's real life, right? I mean, that's, that's rubber meeting the road. See, we can gather here on Sundays and we can sing songs about God. Or we can show up on Christmas and Easter to kind of keep up our sentimental feelings about God. But in the most challenging and difficult moments of life, what we think about God is what we really believe. In the hard moments, what we think about God is what we really believe about God. Maybe you're in the middle of one of those hard moments now. Maybe you're in a season of life right now where things are challenging and difficult. So who is God to you right now? What is God like to you right now in the middle of the challenging and hard stuff? Or maybe you're not in the middle of something hard and challenging, but, but it's coming, and it might be coming soon. So today would be a, a really, really good day a really good day to, to get some answers to that question. Today would be a good day to get a really good grip on a really good definition of who God really is. So where can we find a, a definition like that? Well, it's probably good that we go with someone who has kind of an inside track. So, so we're going to go with Jesus. Jesus was teaching a parable to a crowd one day. A parable, as we've said before, is a, a real-life truth set down inside of a real-life situation so that real-life people can see how to do life for real. And so Jesus tells this parable about a son and his father, and the son goes to the father and demands his inheritance early. And the father very graciously gives him his inheritance, and, and the son takes his, and almost as fast as he can, he takes off for a far country so he can go start living the life that he's always wanted to live. When he got over there, he had a, a lot of money, <laughs> a lot of money, and he starts living a, a really extravagant life. If we were to compare it to today, we, we'd say that he had all the fancy cars, went to all the fancy clubs, and went to fantastic concerts and sporting events. He was whining and dining new friends and new girlfriends every night. He was really living it up. It was an extravagant life, but it wasn't just an extravagant life. It was an immoral life. Jesus describes his life as loose 
living. He was reckless. He was wasteful. He was living in a complete and total rebellious way from everything he had been raised with. But the reality is his extravagant, reckless life didn't last for long because he blew through all his money. I mean, all of it. I mean, he left with lots and lots of money, and he lost all of it. He became broke. He became desperate. He was so desperate that he had to get a job feeding pigs. This is what he did. He fed pigs. Didn't help much, though, because he was still starving. <laughs> so he had a job feeding pigs, but, but he was still starving. He couldn't keep feeding himself. His starvation was actually putting his very life at risk. But then something happened. He came to his senses. He's, he's standing out in this, in this pig pen, and it hits him. He realized how awful his sin was against his father. He realized how awful his sinful lifestyle was, and, and he's standing there in the pig slop, and he's saying to himself, what was I thinking? What, what am I doing here? And it hit him that his brother every day was hiring day laborers. So every day his brother was hiring people back at the family business, and those people were making enough money in one day to have plenty enough food to eat for them and their families. And here he was working day after day after day feeding pigs, and he was starving to death. But in telling this parable, Jesus says he came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, when he realized where he was and what he had done, what did he do? Well, he came up with a plan. Now, it wasn't really a good plan because it was a plan that would move him to be embarrassed and ashamed. It was a plan where he was going to move himself into a world where he would face some kind of abuse. In fact, he might even lose his life. So it doesn't sound like a great plan, a plan that'll, that'll get you killed. So what is his plan? Listen to Luke 15, verses 18 and 19. He says, I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He goes from demanding his inheritance he goes from trying to get away from everyone connected to his family as fast as he can. He goes from there to being broke and desperate and starving and longing for home. Now, he wasn't foolishly longing for home. He wasn't thinking, hey, I'm just going to go home and everything will be fine. You know, my dad's not going to say anything. He'll restore me back to where I was before. No, he's not a fool. At least he's not anymore because <laughs> he's come to his senses. So, so he realizes he's going home and he's going to fall at the feet of his dad. And he's going to say, would you just give me a job? J just for a day. Can I just be a hired laborer today so that I can have just enough money to buy some food today? He comes to his senses. He realizes how mean he's been. He realizes how dumb he's been. He realizes how sinful and wasteful and immoral and reckless his whole life has been. See, he doesn't just feel bad, and he's not just hungry. 
No, what we see in him is repentance. We used this word picture for repentance not long ago. Charles Spurgeon said this, to repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. To repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. So this son is sitting there in the middle of of a lot of future bacon. And man, he's just like, man, what am I doing here? Well, why am I here? But he comes to his senses. And he has a radical change in the attitude of his heart and his mind. His mind is changed about his cool lifestyle that he couldn't wait to get into. His mind is changed about how he thought about his father. His mind is changed about how he thought about his family. His mind is changed about his home and his hometown. His mind is changed. His heart is changed. And how do we know that's true? Because of three words. And those three words are, I have sinned. See, those are not words of someone who just feels bad. Those are not words of someone who just feels hungry. Those are not words of someone who may got caught doing the wrong thing. Those are not words of someone who knows there's someone else out there who could walk up to him right then and say, see, I told you this was going to happen. No, those words, I have sinned, those are words of someone who got miserable on the inside First, I have sinned. That's a confession. Kevin DeYoung says this. Confession of sin is one of the missing ingredients in the life of today's Christian. We feel bad, but often it's over the wrong things. And when we do feel sorry for our sin, we don't know what to do with it. We feel like we are cheapening the blood of Christ if we confessed again, so we hesitate to repent. We feel bad, but we don't confess and enjoy a clean conscience. Some of us become Christians and just go our own merry way, never thinking of sin, while others fixate on our failings and suffer from despair. One person feels no conviction of sin. The other person feels no relief from sin. Neither of these habits should mark the Christian. The Christian should often feel conviction, confess, and be cleansed. Often. It should be part of, of who we are. And he says this. The cleansing, mind you, is not like the expunging of a guilty record before the judge. That's already been accomplished. The cleansing is more like the scraping of barnacles off the hull of a ship so it can move freely again. He says this, we need confession of sin before God like a child needs to own up to her mistakes before mom and dad. Why? Not to earn God's love, but to rest in that love and to know it more fully. See, this young man thought, if I could just get my money, if I could just get my money, then I can go do my own thing. And if I can get away from my father, if I can get away from my family, if I can get away from the family business and the family home, then I could finally be free. But he ain't free. He's he's a pig feeder. And he's starving. That's, That's not freedom. But then he came to his senses. 
And he confessed in his heart, and he confessed in his mind, and he confessed with his words that he had sinned against God, that he had sinned against his Father. And that confession made the natural and really supernatural movement to repentance. And true repentance keeps moving. True repentance doesn't, doesn't stop. So his confession, his repentance, it moved him to make a plan. And his plan was he was going to go home. But true repentance is not just a plan. True repentance requires action. Listen to Luke 15, verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. He didn't just make a plan, he carried out a plan. He didn't just feel bad. He didn't just say he was sorry. He didn't just wish things were different. He didn't just ignore the pain that he had caused. And he didn't ignore the pain that he was causing. He did something. He was convicted about his sin. He confessed his sin. And then he started making movement to deal with the consequences of his sin. I saw an interesting story this week about two frogs. Two frogs sitting on the edge of the water. One frog decided that he was going to jump in the water. So how many frogs does that leave on the edge of the water? Most of us would say one, but but the answer is two. The frog decided that he was going to jump in the water, but he didn't actually jump in the water. See, true repentance is not just deciding to say you're going to be sorry or deciding to say you're going to be repentant. True repentance is you jump in and you act on that repentance. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The son knew he was walking in darkness. He knew he was sinning, and he was just going to say, look, I'm, I'm not going to try to cover this up anymore. I, I realize who I am. I'm not going to act like this isn't going on. I'm walking in darkness. So just a good question for each of our hearts and our minds. Where are you walking today? Are you walking in the ways of God? Are you walking in the ways of light? Or are you walking in the ways of the world? Are you walking in darkness? How you're walking matters. And we're able to see according to the scriptures by how you're living. Our life is a reflection of what we believe and what we believe is who we are. John Piper says this, when you walk in darkness, you are controlled by the desires for the soft, warm underbellies of prestige and power and two-second pleasures. This is the very opposite of what it means to have fellowship with God. Fellowship with God means that you see things the way He sees them, and you have the same desires He has. If we are controlled by desires for the world instead of desires for God, it doesn't matter whether we say we have fellowship with God or not. We don't have it. Instead, we walk in darkness. The son didn't just say he was sorry. He didn't just confess with his mouth. 
No, his confession moved to repentance, and his repentance moved to action. He jumped in and started to change. His godly sorrow led to change. He was walking in darkness, but he got out of, out of the darkness, and he started walking home. And what was he going to find at home? What was he going to find when he got there? When he got home, he was going to find shame. He was going to find scorn. He was going to find embarrassment. He was going to find abuse. And he might even find death. (laughs) Death if he went home. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, right? I mean, really? Death? Well, ancient times are, are not like today. In the ancient culture, this was a whole other thing that he had done. He wasn't just going to roll back up into the village and everybody's sitting over at the Tasty Freeze. And, oh, hey, look, Jimmy's back in town. That's not what was going to happen. No, the mob of people that were in the town were going to be a mob. They weren't going to welcome him back. He had dishonored his father. He had dishonored his family. He had dishonored his friends. He really had dishonored the entire town. It was as if he looked at his father and his family and his friends. It's a, he looked at the whole town, and it was like he just spit in their faces. And he said, y'all are a bunch of losers, and I can't wait to get as far away from you as I can. So yeah, he wasn't going to be welcomed back. When he came back through the city gates, they were going to be yelling at him at least. And it was going to be some abusive language. And they were probably going to do something like just kind of grab him. Maybe take him out to the gate and and tie him up at the front gate and just leave him there for a few days. Just to punish him for his hatred towards family and his friends in his hometown. They might even be so angry that they might pick up some rocks and start throwing them at him in an effort to stone him to death. Now we hear this and we go, hmm. A little different than our times, right? I mean, all this guy did was ask for his inheritance early. I mean, is all this really necessary? A, a mob and, and maybe even being stoned to death? Well, it's different for us because we are in a different time. But in this time, this would be like a, a violent registered offender moving into the neighborhood. This would be like a, a convicted murderer that, that got off on some lame technicality moving into the neighborhood. This guy had done wrong, and in their culture, he had done big wrong. And what he did to his father and what he did to their community was something that they didn't believe was forgivable at all, or at the very least, not very easily forgivable. So how do we know this son was actually repentant? How do we know he didn't just feel bad? How do we know this wasn't like a creative plan that he concocted just so he could get some food? Well, here's how we know. He went home. That's why we know he's repenting. He went home. He went to the place where the shame was going to be loud. He went to the place where he might be stoned to death. Going to his father was not safe. Really, going to his father was was the last place he should go. He was guaranteed some type of abuse. And yet he goes home. What about his father? How's his father going to react? Well, I mean, again, according to the pattern of the culture, it would be fine if he just rejected him. 
if he wouldn't even allow him to come through the gate, that he had to stay out and stay away. You know, this father might turn to his older son or, or maybe his friend sitting around, and he might say, you know what, there he is. There's my good-for-nothing, lazy, wasteful son. Yeah, here he comes. I always knew he'd be back. I knew he'd be back, and he'd be broken, and he'd be poor, and he'd be desperate. Or what I really figured, he'd probably just die out there. Yeah, serves him right. According to the pattern of the culture, it wouldn't have been wrong for the father to show some tough love to his son. Because he was wild, and he was wayward. And he really should not have been welcomed home by anyone. So, what happens? Listen to verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, so the son's made his way home. He's, he's almost there, but he's not quite there. He hadn't quite made it to his father's house. But he, he's closer than he was before. He's still not close enough for his father to, to hear him. He's still not close enough to fall at his father's feet and ask for forgiveness. He's still not close enough to beg his father for a job. He's closer, but he's, he's not close enough. Can't be heard, can't, can't say or do anything yet. Listen, today you might feel like you're a long way off. You might feel like you're a long way off in your sin or your shame or your disobedience or your despair or your discouragement or your depression. And I, I just want to plead with you, if that's you, please hang in with the rest of this story. Jesus continues, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Hadn't quite made it up to the house yet, but, but his father saw him when he was a long way off. Now, we don't know how. Don't know if the father was up on the roof and, and had a telescope and he had it out on the city gates and was always looking for him. Or maybe since the day his son left, his father was so broken that he went to the gates every day. He went and sat at the gates of the city every day, praying and hoping and longing that his son would return. We don't know how he saw him. Jesus just said he, he saw him when he was still a long way off. And when he saw him, the father knew immediately that his son was not coming home to ask for more money. When he saw him, he knew his son was repentant. Why? Because he came home. He came to the last place he should come. He came to the place where he was guaranteed abuse, where he might even lose his life, and yet that's the place that he came. So what does this father do when he sees his boy? This is verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. He ran. This son stood in front of his father and said, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I could have the money that's coming to me. And still, the father ran. 
This son basically looked at his family and his friends and his whole town, and he spit in them in pushy arrogance. I I hate you guys. Y'all are losers. Can't wait to get away from all of you. And still the father ran. This son has been living an immoral life. He's been doing drugs and getting drunk and partying. There may be more than one young lady that comes to the house in the months to come saying that he's the father of their child, and yet still the father ran. He ran. He ran to him. He grabbed him. He hugged him. And as the King James says, he fell on his neck. And he just buried his face into his neck and he just sobbed and he just sobbed and he kept kissing his son on the cheek over and over again. He was so happy, so joyful, so thankful his son had come home. And you know what was happening in that moment? The mob, what were they going to do? They can't run out of there now. They can't run out there with their stones. They can't run out there and scream and yell. The one guy who deserves to hate this kid's guts, he ran to greet him. He ran to embrace him. He ran to hug him. Now, the mob wasn't coming now. The stones were not going to fall. You see, with every hug, with every tear, with every kiss, that father was soaking up all of the blame. He was taking all of the shame on him to protect his son who hated him. He was owning his shame. He was owning his sin because he had compassion on him. I love what Jeff Thomas says about this moment. It was enough for his father to run out to him Those old legs running toward his son, running lest the boy turn away, too overwhelmed with shame to walk the last hundred yards. And when his father reaches him, he wraps his arm around him and sobs out his love, wetting his son's cheeks with his tears and kissing him as he used to when he was a little boy and saying, I'll never let you go again. Who is God? What is God like? God's like that. That's that's what God's like. God saves, God redeems, God shows compassion, God pursues, God runs. And when we're a hundred yards out and we start getting afraid or we start getting arrogant or we start getting foolish, He runs the hundred yards to rescue us. Let's see if we can kind of set this down into our life just just a little bit more. The question that's always asked about the story of the the prodigal son goes something like this. So what was the turning point? I mean, again, Dickens said this is the the most, uh, how do you say it, the, the greatest short story that was ever written. So in the greatest short story that was ever written, what's the turning point? Well, lots of people have have given lots of ideas of what the turning point is, and and truthfully, they're all good. (laughs) There's an argument to be made for almost every point in this story as a turning point. 
And many times we, we hear the turning point is, is when the young man comes to his senses. But is that the turning point? Glenn Scrivener says this, In this kind of preaching, the prodigal is his own savior, and the listener is urged to follow suit. Clean up your act, prepare your sorry spiel, and return to the father's service. But what actually determines the prodigal's fate? What is the decisive moment for his life? Is it coming to himself in the pigsty? And he says this, no. He could have devised the greatest repentance plan known to man and still been rightly shunned by his father. Man, he could have had the best plan in the world and showed up at his father. Man, this is perfect. This is good. Look at how fantastic my repentance is. Listen to how many Bible verses I'm using. Definitely you should take this. And the father says, no, I never knew you. Get away. That could have happened. So the turning point can't be with him. Scrivener goes on. The key moment is the father's embrace. The real change in the prodigal, both his change of status and of heart, happens in the arms of the father. And he goes on to ask this question, so, so how should we preach to a prodigal? That's what he says. Certainly they must repent, must. Sinners need a whole new life. The old one stinks. But where will they find this new life? Not in their resolve but only in the Father's arms. The gospel is not a pigsty plan telling rebels how to make restitution. It's the announcement of one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. He is our focus. That's the message to the prodigal. But what if you're not a prodigal? How do, how do we preach this to ourselves if we're believers? Scrivener goes on, as Christians, we might imagine that we yo-yo in and out of the Father's house according to our performance, but that's a lie. When we sin, we are not alone in the sty. We are there in his arms, reeking and held fast. It's a thousand times worse, a million times better. What does that mean? Well, see, when, when you're a believer and you're in your sin, your sin reeks. So it's a thousand times worse to even put in your mind than in the middle of your rebellion you're being held by the Father. Yeah, it's a, it's a thousand times worse because here's the deal. Our Sunday morning Baptist cologne, our Sunday morning religious perfume does not cover the stink of our sin in the nostrils of God. We can come and, and sit and enjoy and, and go through the ceremony and pat ourselves on the back in the restaurant after church on Sunday, but if our sin is sin and if it's unconfessed, unrepented of sin, God smells it all. And it's a thousand times worse when you think that he's smelling you why he's holding you. But oh, dear friend, it is a million times better too. Because in the stink of your sin, when you are in the arms of your father, the story always changes. 
See, that's what the Father's arms do. They change the story. Because in the Father's arms, you're reminded that he gave his son to take your blame. That he gave your son to absorb all of the shame, the sin that you deserve to be punished for, you aren't punished for because of his son. And see, that changes everything. Who is God? What is God like? He rules. He reigns. He redeems. He rescues. And friend, our God runs. He runs.